finish up verses 17 and 18, Lord willing here. 1 Thessalonians, verses 17 and 18. Before I forget, a couple announcements about the Christmas Eve service. We're going to ask for some testimony time. This isn't real on testimony of salvation. It's just testimony of things the Lord's done in your life. Here's the two categories I'd like you to be thinking about, if you would. How Christ has impacted your Christmas. So how has he made a difference? Uh, If you're saved later in life, you've celebrated Christmases uh, not really focused on Jesus. And then when you got saved, hopefully that changed, and uh, you focused on Christ during Christmas time. So how has Christ specifically impacted your Christmas? Uh, the second category would be names of Christ, and um, what is your favorite name, and why? Right? Our Lord has called many different things. He's called the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He's called the Judge of all flesh, the uh, King of all the earth. There's numerous names for Christ. What is uh, a name of Christ that you uh, particularly like and why? How has it impacted your life? All right. We are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we will read uh, verses 17 and 18, and then we'll open with prayer and get into the lesson. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise of your sudden return. We know that it could happen at any moment, this event we call the rapture. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the salvation that you offer free through your blood. We thank you that you keep us in that salvation, Lord, that there isn't anything I can do to make sure that's more secure. It's secure in the blood of Christ. Sufficient payment it is. We thank you for that, Lord. Pray that you would help us to allow the reality of your return to change our behavior for the better, that we might better reflect the character and spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, allowing the Spirit of God to live through us and make a difference in the lives of others. And we pray that you'd help us to walk away with what you'd have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is the uh, little bit difficult to see um, picture. I apologize for that. Uh, some of these pictures are things that I, uh, pictures I took in uh, when I lived in Seattle. This is uh, Point uh, Deception, I believe, looking out over the bay, over the sound. And uh, so uh, some of these pictures just had a, thank you, that's, that's awesome. Uh, some of these pictures had a beautiful sunset, and it just kind of reminded me of the sudden coming of Christ in the clouds, and so I used these pictures. But here's our outline we've been following. Paul's concern in verses thir- verse 13, uh, his confidence that um, uh, Christ will come back and uh, the dead in Christ will rise first. Those things we looked at in verses 14 and 15, Christ's confirmation, and this is what we're finishing up. We looked at the confirmation being from deity. These promises of his return are not just from a man. They're not tradition. Uh, They're not because Wikipedia says it's some random Christian belief. No, we get these things from the word of God. Paul said, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. So the the rapture, the, the, the return of Christ is something we have confirmation of because he said it and he is God. And then lastly, this confirmation is authoritative, and this is what we're finishing up this morning. Uh, This confirmation is authoritative because it comes from the Lord. Paul says, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Let's, uh, Let's clear up something here for a minute. What is this term rapture? Why do we even use it? Where does it come from? You won't find it in the scriptures. Uh, So where did it develop? What is that? 
Well, it's actually a Latin term from the Latin translation of the Bible, specifically the Latin Vulgate. And it is uh, translated from the Latin verb raptia, if I remember right. And a, a noun form of that or an adjectival form of that would be rapturos, the idea to seize something or to snatch it away. And so because that term just, you know, it got hung on to from the Latin Vulgate, we have adopted that term. And it's so popularly known now as the rapture that it really wouldn't make much sense to change it. The actual Greek word here in the text behind our English translation is uh, harpazo, to seize something, to grab a hold of it and to snatch it away. Uh, in fact, when Jesus said in his parables concerning his victory over Satan and sin, he said, how can a man, uh, how can one spoil a man's house unless he first bind the strong man and then shall he spoil his house? It's, uh, that word he used for spoil is the same uh, root as the word we get here for caught away. So it's the idea of, uh, can even be the idea of violently taking something. And so at any moment, if you are a believer in Christ, at any moment, the Lord can come back and you will be violently, so to speak, snatched away, in a good sense, to meet the Lord in the air. And so this is where we get some of the terminology. And I just like to put that out there because not everyone understands, you know, we, that's not in the Bible. And somebody might say to you, well, the rapture isn't in the Bible. The word isn't. And they're right. It's not. Uh, not in our English translation anyway, nor in the Greek text. And so that's where we get that. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. I don't want us to get caught around, wrapped around the axle concerning, well, how is this going to happen? You know, it, people, not everyone is buried. Some people are cremated. Some people are lost at sea. Some people die a violent death. Some people are uh, disintegrated in explosions. Uh, some people are, you know, the popular thing these days is cremation. Right? I mean, they even go so far as to put you in a, a rocket and shoot you up and you can explode and go out with a bang, so to speak, literally. And that exists. You know, and uh, so, you know, if this happens to you, are you not going to get in on the rapture? You know, is, are you not going to receive a body? Well, yes, you are. Okay. Now, it's not my sermon this morning. I do believe that the most, um, I do believe the best picture of a body being uh, buried in hope of the resurrection would be an actual burial. Okay? And so that's what I would choose, even though it's one of the most expensive ways. But, you know, if you were going to get, if you're going to get cremated or if you know somebody who was cremated, but they're saved, I'm not angry at you. Okay. I'm not angry at you. And um, so I don't think we should get wrapped around the, the axle with vain questions. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, because there have been some who have attempted to argue this point of about uh, concerning, well, how will a, uh, a dead person be raised? And if they were, you know, disintegrated in an explosion, how will the particles come together and their body meet Christ in the air? There are some people we see here in 1 Corinthians 15 who tried these same arguments and Paul basically called them fools. Look at verse 35. But some man will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened or made alive, except it die. He's using a farming uh, agricultural illustration. I work in the agricultural industry, so I can understand this. You put a seed in the ground, certain things happen to that seed, and it turns into something else. Okay? We don't understand the process by which that happens. 
So he says, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. You put a seed in the ground, it, de- it decays and turns into something else. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. You don't put a stock of, uh, you don't take a whole corn plant and stick it in the ground and say, hope to get a corn plant back. You take a little seed, right? Take a little kernel and you put that in the ground and you get the stock of corn. Uh, you don't sow that which shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain, but God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds. There are also celestial or heavenly bodies and bodies terrestrial or earthly bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. Each one has its own unique characteristics. They're not the same. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, a body that is wicked, a body that decays, a body that uh, rots in the grave. It is raised in incorruption, a body that will never perish, never be uh, corrupted. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown or buried a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So I'd just like to encourage us this morning. You know, as we are dealing with people, talking to folks about the rapture, uh, don't let people sidetrack you down in a road of, uh, of vain arguments concerning the body and how it needs to be put in the ground. Again, I do believe a physical burial is the, most, uh, is the best picture in keeping with the hope that we have in Christ. But I have relatives who are cremated, relatives who are going to be cremated, and uh, I'm not angry at people who do not uh, see it that way. Okay. So... How will it happen? Well, we don't know. We need not concern ourselves about it. The Lord will bring it to pass. You know what I love about this passage here is we consider the reality of being caught up to meet Christ in the clouds. Concerning the resurrection of our bodies, however it may be, whether you were buried in the ground, lost at sea, died in an explosion, were cremated, whatever the case may be, the reality is that God leaves nothing undone. Okay? Not only does he save my soul, but he's going to reunite, he's going to unite my saved soul with a new body, leaving absolutely nothing concerning my salvation left undone. And that's a beautiful thing to consider. Uh, what an awesome thing to consider. Because as I consider that, I see the reality that, you know what, God has absolutely everything under control. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again. In fact, you may just want to keep a finger in 1 Corinthians 15 because we'll be going back there. Uh, quite a bit, but 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 21, concerning this idea that uh, Christ will be all in all, he has completed our salvation, he has, uh, he will subject everything to himself, he'll conquer everything, including death. Look at verse 21, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The idea there is I inherit my sin nature from Adam. I am a sinner by birth and I am a sinner by choice. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Okay, so I choose to sin. We read that again in Romans chapter 7. 
when we read about our flesh and how it chooses daily the things that do not please God. But the one who puts his or her faith in Jesus Christ is in Christ made alive because Christ was and is that perfect God-man who never sinned and yet bore the penalty of my sin to the cross of Calvary and died in my place for my sins, went into the grave, was buried, rose again from the dead, and ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. And if I put my faith in his sacrifice and trust him as my Savior, he will apply his blood and his atonement to me and forever uh, cleanse me of my sin. That's what that verse is saying. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits. In other words, if Christ hadn't raised from the dead, I can't raise from the dead. I can't rise from the dead. So Christ is the first fruits in the sense that he rose from the dead under his own power and thereby subjected death to himself and gave me the power to rise from the dead. Not of my own accord, but he will raise me in the last day. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. So this is talking about after the millennial kingdom. Christ will, after he rules on this earth a thousand years, he'll deliver up the kingdom to his Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he hath put all things under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Death will not be given even a slight foothold. Uh, just personify death for a minute and think of him as a king. You know, king death will not even be allowed to hold on to the body. He'll not be able to say to God, well, I'll keep the body, but you can have the soul. And we'll split this thing 50-50. No, no, no. Death is going to be absolutely, completely subjected to God in all things. Because... Christ made a complete and total work of our salvation and nothing is left undone. In a split second, man's most feared enemy will be utterly and completely destroyed. I love this verse here. That's why I just wrote that down for us. For he must reign till he hath put all things, all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And we'll look at that a little bit uh, closer here as we consider the things that God has done for us. And then there's a verse from 1 Corinthians that we'll read here in a minute. In a split, in a split, in a split second, excuse me, man's most feared enemy will be completely destroyed. Go back with me to 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 57. As Paul says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord when we are caught up to meet him in the air. But 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 51, and this is where we'll spend most of our remaining time. Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the twinkling of an eye is the idea of a split-second change. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And then he quotes Hosea 13, 14, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so he quotes some promises from the Old Testament. Let's examine those. Uh, You and I, at the rapture, if you're saved, you and I will participate in a partial fulfillment of what God intends to do after the millennial period and after the great white throne of judgment. If you think back to Revelation chapter 20 and the great white throne of judgment, what does that entail? That's the judgment. Is it the judgment of you and I as believers? No. It is the judgment of the lost. Okay? Remember, there's two resurrections that Revelation speaks of. It doesn't specifically name the second one, but it names it by inference through incident. He says, blessed and holy are they that are part of the first resurrection, right? So those are, uh, those are the saints who are raised after the tribulation period. Tribulation saints, Old Testament saints, you and I are already raised because the rapture takes place prior to the millennial kingdom. Okay? And so anyone who has believed in Christ throughout the ages or in the years to come will be raised and will enter the millennial kingdom. That's the first resurrection, and blessed and holy are they that have part in that. Not holy because of our own merit, but holy because Christ, through his grace and mercy, has imparted his righteousness to us. Right? We are made righteous through him. But there's a second resurrection. And the Bible says, but the rest of the dead live not again till the thousand years were fulfilled. And then it transitions into the great white throne of judgment. And John says, I saw the great white throne of God and I saw all the nations and tongues and stand before him and death and hell delivered up the dead that were in them. Remember it says that? And the books were open. The judgment was set. Daniel words it another way in Daniel chapter 7 when he saw a similar vision. The ancient of days sitting on a fiery throne and he says, and the books were open and the judgment was set. And so there's a judgment there of all the lost. God will judge all the lost, all the lost who have been given up by death and hell. And and I don't understand all the ins and outs of that, but it names it specifically in Revelation. God judges those people. And then at the very end, what does it say? It says, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, right? And so there is that coming. There is that coming. And that's going to take place after the millennial kingdom. But... The rapture event is in many ways a partial fulfillment of that, at least in principle, as God unites me with a new body. And so Paul, in the spirit of that, quotes Isaiah. Let's turn there. Isaiah 28. I explain that because I don't want you to get your eschatology confused. If you read Isaiah, I said Isaiah 28, I'm sorry, chapter 25. If you read chapter 25 and pay attention to the context, you'll realize it's millennial. And you'll say, well, that's not the rapture. Well, you're right, it's not. But the rapture in principle um, fulfills many of these things that we read here in Isaiah 25. And Paul often does that in the New Testament. He'll quote things that are millennial. He does that with the judgment seat of Christ concerning God's return and his millennial judgments. And they're not the same thing. But the, the principles of the judgment seat of Christ, the terror that that can entail for those who have not lived for their Lord The principles of that are very similar to the judgments that takes place in the millennium. And so Paul freely quotes those things. But anyway, look at, uh, we know this is millennial because if we back up to chapter 24, verse 21, we can't miss the beauty of the millennial context. God says, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high. What does uh, God do to Satan in Revelation 20? 
It says, And I saw another angel come down from heaven, having a great chain and the key of the bottomless pit. And he laid on hold on, the, on the old, that old serpent, the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and put a seal upon him that he should not be released until the thousand years were finished, right? And, it says here, and the kings of the earth upon the earth. Well, we see all that all through Revelation. God subjecting the kings of the earth, especially in Revelation 19 where Christ returns and wins the battle that we would call the battle of Armageddon. Okay. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison Satan and his minions will be subjected. Satan himself will be shut up in prison at least a thousand years. And after many days shall they be visited. Satan specifically after a thousand years in which he'll be released. And then he'll go out and gather together, the Bible says, as the sand of the sea, all the rebels that exist in the millennial kingdom that shall be born in the millennial kingdom. Even there we'll have people that don't believe in Christ and they will come against Jerusalem and be destroyed. Verse 23, then, speaking of the millennial context, the, both the thousand-year reign of Christ and also we could apply this to Christ's eternal reign in the new Jerusalem, really, seamlessly we could. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed. <laughs> I love that. The brightness of the moon and the brightness of the sun are nothing compared to the brightness of the holiness of my God. In fact, is there a sun and a moon in the new Jerusalem? Somebody help me out here. No. The Lamb is the light thereof, it says, right? And the God is the brightness of the city. When the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients, and how will he do that? Gloriously. And so the context is millennial as we transition into verse 25. O Lord, thou art my God. I will exalt thee. I will praise thy name. For thou hast done wonderful things. Same Hebrew word where it says that our uh, the Prince of Peace, his name is wonderful. Same word. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. For thou hast made of a city and heap, of a defensed city, a ruin, a palace of strangers to be no city. It shall never be built. Think about the destruction of the uh, tribulational Babylon that we read about in chapter 18 and 17 of the book of Revelation. I believe there's a spiritual Babylon there as well as a physical Babylon, but that's for a different time. Therefore shall the strong people glorify thee. The city of the terrible nations shall fear thee. Every nation will be subjected to Christ in his reign. For thou hast seen a strength, been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. And think about a Middle Eastern storm the blinding, suffocating sand in an instant rising up. And think about a Middle Eastern citizen hunkering down behind a wall to find refuge uh, where the sand won't blow in his eyes and where he can at least breathe. And Isaiah compares the protective nature of Christ to that uh, incident, that illustration. Thou shalt bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place, even the heat with the shadow of a cloud, just like a cloud tends to break the intense heat of the sun, especially in a desert environment. That's how Christ will destroy the wickedness of those who oppressed, in this context, specifically Israel. Okay. But in principle, all of God's people. The branch of the terrible ones shall be brought low. And in this mountain, speaking of the future mountain of God, 
okay, whether it be in the physical location that it's in, whether it be 50 miles north in the, in the land of Samaria, if you want to take Ezekiel's prophecy totally literal, which I do. Uh, regardless, the mountain of God is the mountain of God. And it's good and it's holy because he's there, not because of a specific location. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things. And he uses the illustration of a feast here. A feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people, and the veil that is spread over all nations. What does he mean by that? Well, right now you see there is a blindness to the things of God, is there not? But someday that blindness, specifically the blindness that covers the eyes of God's people, the Israelites, will be taken away. Paul speaks of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel should not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. So Paul uses that illustration of Moses having to put a veil on his face. And he says, you know what? To this very day, my people have that veil on their heart. They can't see. They can't understand the law and how it points to Christ. They just can't see it. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. And so God says, I'm going to do that someday. I'm going to take away the veil that covers all nations. And not just the veil that covers the hearts and the blinds the people of Israel, but the, the veil that blinds the heart of all men. And specifically, think about it. Satan's not going to be around during the millennial kingdom to tempt and to deceive. He's going to be locked up. And so a lot of that opposition is going to be removed. And people are going to see in a, in a major way, yeah, this is the Messiah. This is the one promised. And then uh, here's the verse that Paul quotes. He will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. For the Lord hath spoken it. And I love those verses. I love those verses. And so Paul says, yep, you know what? There's a millennial resurrection coming. But in principle... When, God, when Christ raises us from the dead and unites us with our bodies in, con, in, in principle, we are going to take part of that. We're going to take part of that. And then he transitions right into Hosea chapter 13. Turn there if you would. Hosea chapter 13. And he quotes the um, Septuagint version of this, actually, is what he does. And uh, he quotes Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. The Syriac translation, or the, um, the Septuagint translation of this, it's almost word for word if you look at the Greek Septuagint. God says in verse 13, The sorrows of a travailing woman, speaking of Israel, shall come upon him, he calls Israel Ephraim in verse 12. For he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. I love that phrase. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. It's like God saying, when I do away with death, when I 
resurrect my saints and unite them with their souls, I leave nothing to chance and I take no survivors. No survivors. You know, God is merciful and God is gracious. But God, when he deals with death and sin, there's no survivors. And he does a full and complete work. And that's what God says here. And so Paul quoting that, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And then he answers the question uh, of, of the problem. The problem is that uh, the sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So death will eventually take her place in the lake of fire. Let's visit those verses in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. As we consider the complete full nature of our salvation. God leaving nothing to chance. Revelation chapter 20. Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So Paul says, we're going to be resurrected. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So we wrap up these thoughts, at least in this chapter, before we transition into chapter 5. We'll meet the Lord in the air, and so will we ever be with the Lord. And then he ends with uh, a fitting admonition. He says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. You know, when you and I say to each other, hey, Jesus is coming back, that's not just some cliche. I mean, we could say it that way. And I have said it that way because I just didn't know what else to say, but didn't really mean it in my heart. But as you delve into the scriptures, as you let God's word change you and begin to saturate your soul, eventually when you say, hey, Jesus is coming back, it'll have more personal meaning. And uh, it has more personal meaning to me these days. But Christ is coming back. It's not just some cliche. It's something that is true and is real. Uh, It's more real. You know, I was thinking this morning, the promise of Christ's return is more real than actually anything you have right now. Or that I have. You know, we get up in the morning, we do our thing, and we go to our work, and we have our priorities, and to us, those are realities, right? Those are so real to us. Uh, the love of family, uh, the love of, of, of hobbies, or the love of ourselves, the love of health, and the love of a, a paycheck, and the love of whatever it may be, those things are so real to us. But in reality, they're actually not as real as what we have in Christ. Because all of those things are going to burn up and perish. And outside of the will of God, all of those things are vanity and covetousness. Okay? For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Right? And so if I'm not using all of those things I just mentioned, among many others, to be closer to Christ and to serve him daily, then all of those things are actually just sin. With no more value than what a lost person has from day to day. And God is angry with the wicked every day, is he not? So what I have in Christ is actually more real than anything. So when I say to you or you say to me, Jesus is coming back, this is not just some cliche. This is an actual reality that is far more real than anything we have. 
And so let's end with 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And choosing black as a font was a really bad idea for that. (laughs) Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There's a lot of things that can fail, a lot of things that can go wrong. But whatever you do for Christ, no matter how small or useless it may seem, is never a waste of time. The Lord's coming back suddenly, is he not? And uh, we will transition into chapter 5 after the uh, Christmas uh, holiday. And chapter 5 is not really dealing with the rapture. It is actually more dealing with the tribulation and the things that will come in those days. And uh, Paul is following following a chronological order of things. And it's one reason why we have or should have a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view of the rapture rather than, say, a mid-tribulational or even a post-at-the-end-tribulational view. There's some people that believe that. Okay, so we'll transition into those things with the Lord's help. When we are done with chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, before I turn it back over to Brother Dennis, Lord willing, we will do a one lesson, perhaps two, uh, topical study, and we will list reasons putting all of this stuff we've talked about together along with many Old Testament passages and New Testament promises and passages. We'll put all of that together and we'll go through reasons why you and I should believe in a premillennial, pre-tribulational view of the rapture. Because I'm just going to be transparent with you. The rapture is not the easiest doctrine to just pick up and walk away with. Okay? And I, uh, for years, struggled with it. Uh, I didn't struggle with the fact that it was going to happen because it's very clear in 1 Corinthians, I struggled as to when it would happen. And in my family, the predominant belief was we are, as Christians, going to go through the tribulation. And so I grew up with that mindset. And when someone said, no, we're not, I thought, well, you're just a wimp and you don't want to face the hardships. (laughs) I'm just being honest. That's what I thought. But then a very godly man in Bible college, who was my pastor before I left North Carolina, went through and actually explained topically from the scriptures why he believed in a pre-tribute. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Thank you for putting all of that together. So I'd like to share that gift with you, uh, Lord willing, and uh, help anyone that may be struggling with that concept. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the things that you've taught us here, the things that you've given us, these tremendous promises that we read about in your word. And uh, Lord, we do look forward to the rapture. We also look forward to your kingdom, the resurrection of Old Testament saints, those who will pass on in the tribulation to be with you. And we look forward to that reign. But even beyond that, Lord, we can't even comprehend the glories of the millennial kingdom, much less the glories of the eternal state, which will far exceed anything that you have planned for on this earth. And so we thank you for these things. Lord, we are completely unworthy of any of these things. Our worthiness we find in thee, our acceptance we find in thee, and uh, Lord, the forgiveness of our sin we find in thee through thy blood, and we thank you for that. Pray that you would be with the uh, singing this morning. Please be with pastors. He brings the message. Help us all to apply your word to our hearts in Jesus' name.